Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. In this episode of our holiday trio of American girls, we pick up our investigation with Jenny Jerome, an out-and-out legend, in her day and beyond. We were introduced to Jenny in the last episode, but Jenny's life and times, investigators, what a roller coaster of a tale. One of her best friends, Consuelo Isnaga, as we know, was the first American girl to become a duchess. Jenny Jerome, however, is the first American girl to marry into the English aristocracy, just slightly before her bestie. Jenny Jerome marries Lord Randolph Churchill, but that is not even the delight of all that is Jenny Jerome. Let's investigate. Jenny Jerome was born in Brooklyn in 1854. She was the second of four daughters, Clarita, called Clara, Jeanette, Jenny, Leonie, and Camille. The youngest sister, Camille, died at the age of eight. The three surviving Jerome daughters were known in society as the good, the witty, and the beautiful. The good was Clara, the witty was Leonie, the beautiful was Jenny. Her father, Leonard Jerome, was born on a farm and was one of ten children. Although from a modest background, Leonard was always driven by money and becomes a Wall Street speculator. The key to Leonard's success and sometimes losses was that he was not afraid of risk or unpredictability. He had several periods in his life when his speculating and business ventures did not work out quite like he wanted and the Jerome family's financial situation would ebb and flow along with his success or failure. However, Leonard has a great deal of drive, energy, and persistence, which he will pass on to his daughter, which she will pass on to her very famous son, Winston Churchill. They did not need a guarantee of victory in their pursuits, but they always believed in themselves enough to take the risk. Remember that as we go through this story. Jenny's mother, Clarissa, called Clara, was from a wealthy family herself and greatly concerned about her social status. She understood her husband's money could not buy them a place in society and that without that proper place in society, her three daughters, the good, the witty, and the beautiful, just simply wouldn't make good marriages. By the early 1860s, Leonard was worth $10 million and was dubbed the King of Wall Street. The Jerome family moves from Brooklyn to an extravagant mansion on Manhattan's Madison Avenue and 26th Street. The Jerome mansion was so full of excesses that it had a 600-seat opera house inside, just of the home. Friends, imagine that. When the Jeromes move in, they throw themselves an ostentatious housewarming party to announce that they have arrived primarily, secondarily, to absolutely flaunt their wealth. This party famously had two enormous flowing fountains. One of these was full of champagne, 
The other one was full of eau de cologne, if you can imagine. Leonard Jerome, though, was not free of personal scandal. In fact, it is rumored that he had an illegitimate daughter named Minnie Hawk by his opera singer-mistress. If you look at pictures of Minnie and Jenny, it is certainly reasonable to think that they may be related. Minnie was once described as, quote, so like Jenny, but less good-looking, unquote. Clara, Jenny's mom, Mrs. Jerome, desperately wants to break into the old money society, but we've seen it. We've seen it so much in our story. Those Knickerbocker establishment families were pretty determined not to let any interlopers in to their tight-knit system, especially Caroline Astor. Her ballroom with room for 400 people, remember, would become known as Mrs. Astor's 400. The Jeromes were never going to be accepted. They were nouveau riche and audacious. An additional complication was that Clara, Mrs. Jerome, was rumored to have Native American blood, which for high society at the time proved somehow far too scandalous for them. This claim has never been substantiated, but just the rumor alone of it was enough to make the Jerome girls unmarriageable in polite society. In 1867, realizing that she would not be able to break into New York society, Clara decides to take her three daughters to Paris to launch them. The court of Emperor Napoleon III and Empress Eugenie was far more welcoming than New York, and, and this court doesn't particularly care where your money came from as long as you were willing to spend it. We have mentioned the court of Empress Eugenie back in the episode before, but I do want to stress here the importance of Empress Eugenie of France. Eugenie is, in fact, a beautiful Spanish countess who married Napoleon III in 1853, making her the last empress consort of France. Eugenie plays a major role, a pivotal role, not just in the world of politics, but also fashion. Eugenie introduced the cage crinoline, worn underskirts in 1855, and the rest of European fashion trends followed her lead. Our famous empress was constantly seeking new and novel dresses and adornments. She made Charles Frederick Worth and his designs famous. Even the most expensive of her gowns were altered, added to, or embellished in some way by herself personally. This is after they're custom made. Eugenie demonstrates her artistic and creative abilities through her love of fashion. She spends extravagantly on clothing and accessories and will become the model for all fashionable European women to copy. In addition to her influence and importance in the fashion world, Eugenie plays a tremendously important role for our American heiresses, our American girls. Paris at the time is the center of arts, culture, fashion, and and Eugenie is in charge of every single one of those worlds. She will welcome the nouveau riche Americans, give them social acceptance and standing that they had been denied within New York. Eugenie was the gateway for many families, just like the Jeromes, between the New York society that had rejected them and the English aristocracy that, quite frankly, needed their money. 
Eugenie's court was the perfect training ground for these rich American girls whose mothers were, quite frankly, desperate for them to marry into an aristocratic and titled family. There is one strict requirement within the court. You gotta pay to play, friends. Everyone at court has to be dressed spectacularly, meaning you could never wear the same outfit twice. This requires an enormous number of gowns for any lady at her court. And while extravagant and incredibly expensive, this is not really a problem to the wealthy Americans to provide for themselves and their daughters. Dressing to impress became not just a necessity, it became an art form. The Jerome girls, Clara, Leonie, Jenny, are a big hit in Paris. 12-year-old Jenny will meet other American girls in the same situation. Here at the Parisian court, the Jerome girls are exposed to decadence and style, as well as flirtations and some morals that may be a little loose. The Jerome family thrive in Paris until the Franco-Prussian War forced them to England. The Jerome girls were told throughout their entire childhood how clever, how special, how talented, and how beautiful they were. And the Jerome girls believed it. These things were especially true of Jenny, who was, in addition to her vast other qualities, witty and also a very accomplished pianist. Jenny also had a very curvy and voluptuous figure. It was not just her parents that thought Jenny was fantastic and unique. Oscar Wilde himself called Jenny beautiful and brilliant. Along with her beauty, intelligence, education, and vitality, Jenny Jerome had the package. Confidence to the extreme. Jenny will make her debut in London in 1872. It is on August the 12th, 1873. Jenny will attend a ball for the Prince and Princess of Wales. Remember, this is Bertie and Princess Alexandra. This extravagant ball is held on the Isle of Wight, and this party will change the course of history. It is here that a 19-year-old Jenny Jerome will meet the 24-year-old Lord Randolph Churchill. These two, of course, would go on to produce their son, Winston, who would lead England through World War II and be instrumental in defeating Adolf Hitler. The attraction between Randolph and Jenny was powerful and immediate. Randolph said he was in love after one dance, and he will propose to Jenny three days later. Lord Randolph Churchill was born on February the 13th, 1849, and he was the third son actually the second surviving son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough and his overbearing mother, Frances, the Duchess of Marlborough. Lord Randolph was raised at Blenheim Palace and being the second son of a duke, primogeniture dictates that Lord Randolph is not going to inherit the title or the wealth his older brother will. As a younger son, Lord Randolph is given a courtesy title of Lord but he's actually a commoner and would eventually be elected to the House of Commons in Parliament. The thing you want to know about Randolph, though, he's a heavy drinker, and he enjoys carousing. Like many younger sons not in direct line to assume the family mantle, Randolph lacks purpose and direction. He's not considered very handsome, but 
it is agreed upon that he was considered very charming. After Randolph proposed to Jenny, three days after that first dance, and Jenny accepted, now it was time to tell the parents, and quite frankly, neither set of parents were very happy with this news. The Duke and Duchess of Marlborough were not in favor of the match, because Jenny was an unknown American girl from a dubious family. The Jeromes are not happy, because while coming from a prominent aristocratic family, Randolph is not set to inherit title or wealth, which to the Leonards doesn't make Randolph any kind of great prize. The couple were almost forbidden to marry, but good old Bertie, Prince of Wales, swoops in with his approval. The Prince of Wales is completely besotted with Jenny, as well as her friend Consuelo Isnaga, and since Bertie not only approved of, but was enchanted by Jenny Jerome, the couple naturally gains his approval to marry. A stipulation of this marriage was that Randolph was to run for a seat in Parliament. He did that, and Randolph was elected in February 1874. Our two lovebirds send many letters between themselves while the details of their marriage were being sorted out and agreed upon by each set of parents. Randolph's letters were sappy and very passionate. Jenny's letters were less overtly loving but still affectionate. Here's a way to get a little bit of a handle on our girl Jenny. While expressing her affection in one of these letters, Jenny still asserted her independence and extraordinary confidence. In one of these letters, she said, I won't marry you unless you let me do exactly as I like. Leonard Jerome, Jenny's father, initially refuses to pay a dowry because he was against the concept in general and because Randolph was not the firstborn son, which made him undeserving of Jenny in Leonard's eyes. However, the Marlboroughs insisted on it, and it was, in fact, British law. Leonard Jerome eventually agrees to pay a $50,000 dowry, which was a very modest amount compared to Jerome's wealth. He said that the match was not prestigious enough to be worth any more than that. On April the 15th, 1874, Jenny and Randolph marry at the British Embassy in Paris, and Jenny Jerome is now Lady Churchill. She is the first American to marry into the English aristocracy. The Knickerbocker women back at home in America were devastated. They had no choice now but to accept and even welcome the Jerome family into their high society ranks. Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born seven months after the wedding at Blenheim Palace on November the 30th, 1874. As was the custom of the time, it was announced that Jenny had delivered her son prematurely. However, Winston was robust and healthy at birth with no indications of being premature. When asked much later in life about the timing of his birth, Winston Churchill would humorously say, Although present on the occasion, I have no clear recollection of the events leading up to it. It will quickly become obvious that Winston has inherited his mother's character, charisma, and fortitude. The Churchill's early marital years were a blur of balls, operas, galas, regattas, hunts, and other social engagements. Jenny was a high-society favorite. Her glamorous looks and American sensibilities made her not just a popular hostess, 
but a popular guest as well. She was the only one of the high society ladies with a tattoo. Jenny had a tattoo of a snake coiled around her left wrist. Not too hard to imagine, Jenny also has a surplus of sex appeal with almost animal-like magnetism. One of her admirers and possible lovers, Edgar Vincent, Viscount Dabernon, once described her as, quote, more panther than woman, unquote. Jenny was sexually liberated and enjoyed very much the effect she had on men. Over the course of her life, Jenny would have many lovers. Some accounts say as many as 200. She was dubbed Lady Randy. A second son, John, called Jack, was born in February 1880. Many believe that Jack's actual father, Evelyn Bosquin, 7th Viscount Falmouth. This claim, though, has never been substantiated. Throughout her marriage, Jenny campaigned tirelessly for her husband's political career. She's a tremendous asset to him. Randolph was an active but controversial political figure. He is the one that coins the term Tory democracy, referring to his policy of progressive conservatism. His political career included being a member of Parliament, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Leader of the House of Commons, and the Secretary of State for India. One of Jenny's most impressive accomplishments was the founding of the Primrose League in 1883. The Primrose League was a group that brought a social element to politics. While it was primarily a social club, they had significant influence on politics at the time. The Primrose League is known for their balls and teas and dinner parties, even their cycling clubs and other social events. But the organization is not exclusively female, but does heavily encourage women to join and participate in politics. The Primrose League was not dissolved until 2004. Oh, mother-in-laws. See, Randolph's mother does not really like Jenny, and Jenny doesn't really like her. This will prove to be a very contentious relationship that would last throughout Jenny's life. Jenny said that her mother-in-law thought of American girls as an exotic mix of a red Indian and a gaiety girl. It is also known that the Duchess of Marlborough and eventual Dowager Duchess disapproved of Jenny's extravagant spending. The financial problems of the Churchills would be a lasting issue and would follow Jenny even after Randolph's death. Jenny and Randolph both spent freely, and far more, each of them, than their income supported. They were in debt and often borrowed from their friends and relatives. None of these things, though, including motherhood, dulled Jenny's sparkle. Jenny was a hands-off mother, which was not uncommon of her time in class. Her children were relegated to the nursery and were raised by their nanny, Elizabeth Everest, to whom the boys would remain devoted to for the rest of their lives. By the early 1880s, Jenny and Randolph's marriage was strained. Their financial troubles, their physical separations due to travel, and the extramarital affairs on both parts contributed to this estrangement. Randolph's behavior was also becoming more and more erratic and cruel. Jenny was still vibrant, glamorous, and the object of many men's attention and affection. 
Consuelo Vanderbilt wrote of Jenny in her autobiography, The Glitter and the Gold, quote, She was still in middle age the mistress of many hearts, and the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, was known to delight in her company. Her gray eyes sparkled with the joy of living, and when, as was often the case, her anecdotes were risque, it was with her eyes as well as her words that one could read the implications. She was an accomplished pianist, an intelligent and well-informed reader, and an enthusiastic advocate of any novelty, unquote. The Churchills essentially lived separate lives for many years in their marriage. And Seba, Jenny's biographer, speculates that Randolph was possibly gay, using the fact that his companions were always men, and Randolph preferred to travel and be in the company of men as evidence. As he continued to be neglectful, verbally abusive, and unstable, no one really blamed Jenny for being unfaithful. And Seba says of Jenny during this time, quote, She was highly sexed, and she needed the physical reality of having a man that adored her and adored her body, not just her mind, unquote. Jenny had numerous notable lovers, including Count Charles Kinski, an Austrian diplomat whom some close to her felt was the love of her life, the Prince of Wales, who Jenny calls Tum Tum, Lord Wolverton, Lord Astor, and American politician William Bort Cochran. There are others, too. Those are just some highlights for you. Although Jenny was clearly not faithful to her husband, she was certainly loyal to Randolph and his career. Jenny is the key to his political success by her networking and campaigning for him. Her personality and charisma is far more appealing than her husband's, especially as Randolph's behavior continues to spiral downward. Jenny is really instrumental and tireless in working for his success. It is understandably a shock to our girl when suddenly Randolph resigns without warning or without telling his wife. Randolph cruelly allows Jenny just to find it out by reading it in the newspaper, where he watches her read the news, and when shock showed on her face, he said, Well, it must be a surprise for you, isn't it? Maybe not the way you want to find out about that at the breakfast table. By this time, it was clear that Randolph had some sort of mental and medical problem causing his issues. After resigning from the government, Randolph comes clean to Jenny about his illness. Randolph had been suffering from what they politely called general paralysis of the insane, quote-unquote, which in everyday English translates to Randolph had syphilis. The end of Randolph's life was terrible for him and for Jenny, who remained loyal and dedicated to him. Randolph had violent rages, could not swallow properly, would lurch around as if drunk. He lost his ability to speak. He would go in and out of dementia, often needing to be restrained. Randolph had a wish to go on one last trip, and Jenny decided to do this with him, both for him and to save the reputation really for her son's futures. Jenny and Randolph boarded a cruise ship with a straitjacket for his violent rages, as well as a lead-lined coffin 
because no one really expected Randolph to make it back alive. Remarkably, though, Randolph does make it back home. The couple returns to London in late 1894, but only a month later, Randolph Churchill dies at the age of 45. Everyone respected the way that Jenny nursed and cared for her husband right up into his death. After his death, a member of Parliament came to get Randolph's robes. Jenny Jerome refused to give them back, saying she was saving them for her son. My goodness, Jenny Jerome, now a widow. Remember, she'd been married at the age of 20. Now she's a widow at the age of 40, and and Jenny's needing to decide what she wants to do with the rest of her life. The most important change that Jenny makes at this time is to improve her relationship with and her level of involvement in her son's lives. Remember, throughout their childhood, Jenny was distant and uninvolved. Her two boys had been raised by their loving nanny and then sent to boarding schools, rarely seeing their parents. But after Randolph's death, the boys a little bit older now, Jenny becomes much more involved in both of her son's lives. Jenny is a strong and guiding force in Winston's life and future. Jenny believes in Winston unwaveringly and instills in him that he, in fact, has a destiny to lead. Jenny becomes incredibly ambitious for her son's career, seemingly pouring all of her frustrations and disappointments about her husband Randolph's political career into Winston. From this point forward, Jenny would remain devoted to both of her sons, but Winston would remain the most important man in Jenny's life. Jenny will observe a short period of customary mourning and then gets back to being Jenny Jerome. She goes to parties. She mingles. She flirts. Jenny will do a lot of charity work, as was expected of widows in her class. In 1899, our Mary Widow becomes very involved in fundraising for the Second Boer War in South Africa, where both of her sons were serving. She was instrumental in raising the necessary funds to buy and supply the needs for a hospital ship. Once completed, the ship was named the Maine, and Jenny shocked high society when she accompanied the ship to South Africa and served as a hospital administrator during the war. In 1902, Jenny would be awarded the Red Cross by her old friend and lover, the former Prince of Wales, and now King Edward VII. Jenny was sincerely concerned with the war effort, especially with her son serving there, but she may have had another motive for heading to South Africa. See, Jenny had begun a romance with a young member of the Scots Guard. His name is George Cornwallis West. They begin their affair in 1897. Perhaps scandalously, Jenny had been friends with George's mother, for a number of years, and and had known George for many of those years, too. Jenny is 20 years older than George, her young lover, and George is really just a few weeks older than Jenny's son, Winston. This was scandalous, obviously. During this time, Jenny shows some of her spunk and ingenuity by taking on a new venture. As had been the case ever since marrying Randolph, Jenny had worries about money. 
She also needed something to satisfy her intellectual curiosity and political interests. In 1899, Jenny founds and edits the Anglo-Saxon Review. What's that? The Anglo-Saxon Review was a quarterly journal, including articles on a variety of subjects and by a variety of prominent authors. The journal was elaborately and beautifully designed as well. Unfortunately for Jenny, the Anglo-Saxon Review was not a financial success and stopped printing after 10 issues. But hey, I dropped the thing about the love affair. What happens? A 46-year-old Jenny Jerome Churchill will marry 26-year-old George Cornwallis West on July the 28th, 1900. No one, no one, not one single person approves of this marriage. Even Bertie, Jenny's longtime ally, was horrified by this match, and Bertie and Jenny fell out of touch for a short time because of it. See, George Cornwallis West had no money, and by this time, Leonard Jerome, Jenny's father, had died, leaving his wife Clara with not much extra money she could send to Jenny. The financial tensions will strain the marriage early. Jenny throws herself into Winston's political career. She'll campaign for her son and champion him in the same ways that she had done for Randolph. Jenny would be Winston's political hostess until he married Clementine Hozier in 1908. So what to do? In order to earn some money, Jenny also returns to writing during this time. She'll try her hand as a playwright. She'll write the play His Borrowed Plumes in 1908, and it was produced at the Haymarket Theater. She wrote another play in 1913 called The Bill. Both plays were financial failures. Not surprisingly, her marriage to George Cornwallis West also failed. What made it even more insulting to her writing failure injury, though, was that George left her for the lead actress in her play, His Borrowed Plumes, Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Jenny files for divorce, claiming that George had, quote, denied her conjugal rights, unquote. Their divorce was final in July 1914, after 14 years of marriage. Jenny does not find what she was looking for in that second marriage or as a playwright, but Jenny Jerome will find great success writing memoirs. Her book, The Reminiscences of Lady Randolph Churchill, was published in 1908 and was a critical and financial success. Her collection of essays, Short Talks on Big Subjects, published in 1916, was also a success. So we've moved along in our tale now to about 1914, and Jenny's getting a little older. Her looks perhaps are fading, and the world is, in 1914, changing rather quickly. World War I begins, and Jenny now will keep herself busy and make herself useful by translating French documents for the British government. She also wrote about the war in the London Daily Chronicle. During and after World War I, Jenny continued going to parties, doing charity work, and socializing. At a wedding she attended in Rome in 1913, she met the much younger Montague Fippen Porch. Porch was a British colonial officer serving in Africa. Jenny was 59 and Porch was 36 at the time of their meeting. Montague Porch fell in love with Jenny and 
Jenny does not discourage his attention or advances. Jenny was lonely, and although she kept up her active social life, she had become far more self-pitying and much more melancholy after her divorce from Cornwallis West. When Porch was on leave from Nigeria, he and Jenny spent a great deal of time together. But Montague Porch is not the only younger man Jenny's spending time with. Jenny hates being alone. In the spring of 1918, Montague Porch proposes to Jenny and she accepts. Their engagement was a bit of a shock to the family. After all, this time, her intended groom is three years younger than her son Winston. However, both of her sons, her daughter-in-law Clemmy and even Randolph's younger sister, were all happy for her and attended the wedding on June the 1st, 1918. They could all see that Jenny was happier and livelier than she had been in a while, and her family welcomed her happiness. Jenny was 64 years old at the time of her third marriage. Her groom was 41. When questioned about the couple's age difference, Jenny famously replied, He has a future and I have a past, so we should be all right. Jenny does not change her name this time and will be known as Lady Randolph Churchill for the rest of her life. Jenny and Montague Porch were reportedly very happy together. Jenny was also enjoying traveling, spending time with her grandchildren, and many of the activities that she had been enjoying her whole life. Porch was away in Africa a lot for work, but the two remained in close contact and corresponded often. In June of 1921, Jenny was visiting her friend Lady Frances Horner at Mel's Manor House in Somerset. Jenny had recently returned from a trip to Italy and was wearing new high-heeled Italian slippers, when unfortunately Jenny slips and falls down the staircase. A doctor was called and the doctor diagnoses that Jenny had broken her left ankle. However, within a short period of time, gangrene had set in. A surgeon was called and decided the leg would need to be amputated. Jenny took the news calmly and with a positive attitude. Quickly after the amputation, Jenny seemed to be recovering well. She was cheerful she received visitors. While recovering, Jenny enjoyed many letters and well wishes from both family and friends. On June the 29th, 1921, Jenny wakes up in good spirits and eats a hearty breakfast, but then, without any warning, Jenny begins to bleed profusely and yells, Nurse, nurse, I'm feeling faint. Jenny then goes unconscious. The main artery in the amputated leg had hemorrhaged. Jenny Jerome slipped into a coma and died. She was 67 years old. Jenny Jerome Churchill is buried next to her first husband, Lord Randolph Churchill, in the Churchill family plot at St. Martin's Church in Oxfordshire. Jenny Jerome has quite a lasting impact in history. With her connections, her loves, her friends, her society antics, just what an incredible life. But perhaps Jenny's most lasting impact on history is through her belief in her son Winston Churchill, in whom she instilled her unfailing will and perseverance, just like her father did to her. Although Jenny does not live to see Winston become prime minister, Jenny never doubts that it will happen. 
in a letter of encouragement to her son in 1915 when Winston was serving on the Western Front. She wrote to him, I am a great believer in your star. I am a great believer and fan of the star that was Jenny Jerome Churchill. What a story. That is the second of our American Girls trio this week. I hope you stay curious and keep on investigating for the next episode where we're going to talk about Consuelo Vanderbilt, namesake of the first of our trio, Consuelo is Naga. Thanks again, everyone. Play on. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.